than this Black Lives Matter era, I had to humble myself and say, I cannot be in every space because some spaces should be for people under 35. Some spaces should be for queer folks. Some spaces should be for African-Americans. And what does that mean? That means not only do you humble yourself, that also means at this point that there's other ways we can support. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, vital conversations about race, identity, and allyship as the world protests for Black lives. The killing of George Floyd became a national headline soon after footage of the incident spread on social media. Graphic videos showed Floyd, a 46-year-old Black man and father, dying as a police officer knelt on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. I can't breathe! I can't breathe! I can't breathe! I can't breathe! After protests erupted around the world, Derek Chauvin, the officer kneeling on his neck, was taken into custody and charged with second-degree murder. And then later, the three other officers present were charged with aiding and abetting murder. It feels like the killing of George Floyd has awakened many not just to longstanding issues in policing, but also to the structural inequities that got us here. And that's driven a lot of protesters and activists to look for solutions for our future. Black Lives Matter is officially calling for divesting money from the police and investing instead in community health. The NAACP has also released a list of action items, including implementing citizen review boards in cities across the country and making officers' disciplinary histories available to the public. Other groups are calling for various degrees of police reform or abolition, and the city of Minneapolis has actually committed to disbanding its police force in favor of community-led public safety. But still, there are many conversations to be had about how we move forward. For Latinx people, that's meant confronting issues of race and anti-Blackness within our own communities. And many are grappling with how to hold these conversations with their loved ones. We're also thinking about how to be useful allies at this time as a new generation of Latinx activists step up and speak out. Today on our show, the first of several conversations we'll be having about this complex moment, we'll talk with organizer and Afro-Puerto Rican scholar Rosa Clemente. There are not thousands of people in the streets. There are millions. We're all in this issue of this elite 1% looting from us. And we have to say, we did this, and now we keep going and even do better. Rosa recently founded the Black Latinx Organizing Project. It's a nonprofit dedicated to combating anti-Blackness in the Latino community. She's also established a Puerto Rican media collective called PR on the Map, and she ran for vice president on the Green Party ticket in 2008. I sat down with Rosa to talk about the systemic failures that have led to these current protests. We also spoke about how Latinos are interrogating what roles we need to play 
during this pivotal moment. Rosa Clemente, welcome to Latino USA. Oh, thank you always for having me, Maria. I appreciate it. So I've got to start with that question. I mean, this is um, a historic time, but it certainly is also a very painful time. So I just want to check in on you. How are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you managing? I mean, I'm good, you know, and uh, part of it is I've been trained as an organizer and for a very long time, I've been involved in so many uh, police brutality um, movements and cases, you know, so I'm actually heartened and, and I'm so proud of all these young people on the streets. Emil Carr Cabral, someone that everybody should know as one of the greatest philosophers in, in the 20th century, said, claim no easy victories, you know, meaning claim a victory right now. The victory right now is that people would have expected in the middle of a global pandemic that no one would have come out. And it's important, especially as seasoned organizers, that we show young people and immediately say, once you make a point to resist, you're on the path to winning. What that looks like may be very different for everybody, I really encourage younger people especially to always look at our history, not just from a point of oppression, but from a point of resistance. And we have to see ourselves before oppression. Like we have to look at our history before the 400 years that we've been experiencing. If you step back at this particular moment that we're living in, for you as an organizer and a historian, was this inevitable? This kind of utter confrontation that gets more and more intense, given the history of this country and what's been happening now over the last four years, do you think that this was inevitable? Oh, of course. I mean, look, the American project begins with enslavement and exploitation of undocumented people and the taking of land of Native people. So the American project has been a failure from the beginning. And we've seen deaths before, but because we're in this global pandemic, people are impacted by every systematic rupture, including lack of healthcare and capitalism. I mean, it's like, what did they think was gonna happen? You cannot keep killing our people in this manner. So, Rosa, let's talk a little bit about checking anti-Blackness in our Latino community. And it's been an issue for a long time because of the legacy of colonialism in Latin America. But, you know, there's been criticism, strong criticism of Spanish language television news outlets for how they covered these protests. So you're saying this is really a moment to confront these biases. What does that actually look like to you? Well, again, the, the history is instructive, but, you know, I, I'm 48. So at my age, at this moment in my life, um, 
if your family and you're still like rocking with all that anti-blackness, I just, you're not part of my circle anymore, to be honest with you. You know, there comes a time where you got to put up boundaries. And I think that's really hard when you're younger. Right. And I, I, I don't tell people that's what they have to do, but I definitely tell people that's what I've done. I do believe that always there are organizing opportunities in our families. But again, if you don't have those boundaries, you will end up emotionally scarred. You know, I wasn't born into a movement household. I was born in the Bronx while the Bronx was burning. I had to go to college to even understand why we as Puerto Ricans were American citizens. So there was not a lot of political talk ever in my household. But what I I did begin to do, the more I became politicized, is one of my professors and mentors, Dr. Vivian Verdell Gordon, would always say to me, you know, if you can't talk to your family at the dinner table, how are you going to organize? And early in my college years, that's what I began to do. So I would come home, I'd be like, mom, dad, why didn't you tell me about this? Daddy, you're you look black. Why does your birth certificate say you're white? And then I began to have more conversations, not only with my younger cousins, especially those that are still in the Bronx. You know, I would send them books. Now that we have social media, that's what I do. My cousins will hit me up. I'm like, well, you need to read this. How do I deal with this anti-blackness from Titi? You need to do this. What do I do at work? You need to do this. I have now even younger cousins that want to be on the streets. And I'm like, okay, you can go on the streets, but do you have a crew? Where's your protocol? What happens when your phone dies? You know, and then lastly, for myself, I continue to interrogate myself. I do a check-in with myself once a month. Now I have a checklist like, where are you failing? Do you understand your privilege? Where are you stagnant? Where are you being too cavalier? You know, so those are the things that I do within my blood family. And actually, so my brother, who is also very, very light skinned and favors my mom, for years, he's heard me for 30 years. He called me three days ago. He called my sister, actually, hysterically crying. And he goes, why don't I know this? Why didn't I listen to you? I have white skin privilege. What that shows is that usually what ends up happening is that it takes something to wake up your consciousness. And even though I've been talking to my brother all his life about this, this moment awakened him. And now at 38, he's like, this has to stop. This has to end. Coming up on Latino USA, my conversation with Afro-Puerto Rican activist Rosa Clemente continues. Stay with us. No te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Latino to learn more and get 10% off your first month. You may have noticed something at all these protests over police violence. There are a lot more white people there than you'd expect. But how long will that last? This awakening among white American voters, how far are they really willing to go beyond dethroning Trump? Adam Serwer on race and lessons from history. Listen and subscribe to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We're back. Like Rosa, many activists are looking to the past in order to inform the present. Tamika Mallory, one of the leading organizers of the Women's March, recently said that the looting and rioting that happened is actually learned behavior from American history. Don't talk to us about looting. Y'all are the looters. America has looted black people. America looted the Native Americans when they first came here. So looting is what you do. We learned it from you. We learned violence from you. In her 2001 article, Who is Black? Rosa Clemente explained how some of that cycle of violence is mirrored in Latin American and Latinx history. Because of this, she says, Latino social justice efforts have often learned from and grown with Black movements. For example, in the 1960s, radical Latinx activist groups like the Young Lords and the Brown Berets would hit the streets alongside the Black Panther Party. The Young Lords started as a group of Puerto Rican activists in Chicago and grew in New York. They were inspired by the Black Panthers' actions and made similar efforts in Latino communities. The Brown Berets, started in L.A. and spread across the country, even modeled their revolutionary look, berets and military-style clothing, after the Black Panthers. It was the Black and Brown Power Movement that said, we will put our lives on the line for Black liberation. We have a history of always being part of each other's struggles. That doesn't mean we have to not interrogate anti-Blackness. That doesn't mean we don't have to check some people up in our family, but we're in these streets too. And I think it fits a very mainstream white supremacist narrative to try to continue to divide who we are as a global Black people, but also as a global Indigenous people. Everyone has been kind of watching in real time how this movement, these protests, um, this uprising of pain and anger has been covered by mainstream media. So I'm wondering, as journalists of color and of conscience, what is our role and responsibility in this moment in terms of how we frame this? As journalists of color, we have this historical perspective that is part of how we report on what's happening right now. Yeah, well, two things that I don't believe there's objectivity in journalism. That would be the first thing. Second, I would say we should be completely unapologetic about saying, where are the Latinos, Latina, Latinx folks? Not only in mainstream media, but a lot in this white, so-called left progressive media. 
Dr. Jarrett Ball, he is a comrade of mine. We went to Cornell together and have been comrades for a long time. He's a media scholar. And his theory is that journalism should be emancipatory, that if your journalism is not about freedom, then it's not journalism. I'm wondering whether or not this is yet again another moment for the wider Latinx uh, community and people who are not Latinx to understand about Afro-Latinos. I love seeing a younger generation. I love seeing like the visibility of some Afro-Latina, especially women. My critique right now around all of that is that still, unless we confront anti-Blackness and all we're talking about around Afro-Latinx identity is hair and food and language, well, you know, then you can be Afro-Latinx and participate in anti-Blackness. We're not dealing with the colonized mentality. We're not dealing with the fact that as a greater Latinx community, we are told that a race to Latinidad is a race to whiteness, is a race to being better than everybody else. But I would say in my generation and younger ones, I, I am proud to say I'm one of those few people that have been talking about and and really being about who I racially am, often to the detriment of me even being exiled in a lot of mainstream Latinx circles. There have been movements on the ground ever since we were captured and enslaved and exploited. How do we use the past to articulate the present condition But to also be aware that organizing itself is a skill that you have to learn. And usually you only learn it through organizations. I love the Dream Defenders, Mi Gente, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. You know, what an amazing time to finally see black and brown queer trans folks being like, no, you're not leaving us out. We will not be a race. We will not separate our identity and we will lead this movement. We have theory out there that is now called Black Queer Feminist Theory. When did I think I would ever see that as a guiding principle? And it's here. Um, What's keeping you going? I mean, we were asking the question not too long ago about how to cope with being in quarantine. We're dealing with being in quarantine and watching a mass movement. It can feel very overwhelming. How are you coping and finding places to nourish yourself in this moment? Trying to be more disciplined, realizing that sometimes you have to be still, that reading and writing is just as important right now as being in the streets. You know, um, second, our people, our people. Yo, this has to stop, like, If this doesn't stop now, it's never going to stop. We've seen what the police do and who they kill, you know, and at the end, it's definitely like all the children in our collective lives. But, you know, to see my daughter at 15 making an Instagram video where she could list the names of all these people killed was heartbreaking. And then on the flip side was like, Wow, me and Justice, my husband, are pretty good parents, but the movement is a great parent, you know? And look at it as a 15-year-old saying, this has to end and our generation's going to stop this. 
I'm sorry. Don't apologize. I'm sorry. Si empiezo a llorar, no paro. So, <clears throat> Rosa Clemente, thank you so much for all of your work and for spending some time educating and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. Anytime. And thank you to your crew and thank you for you. And, you know, I'd rather be in the streets with you because I know you can uh, outbox anybody. There are so many conversations to be had at this moment and to keep on having, and we're committed to doing that here at Latino USA and Futuro Media. And Rosa recommends some reading that might be helpful in this time. She suggests texts such as One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race by Dr. Yaba Blay, which challenges the concept of blackness as one identity. Some of Rosa's other favorites include Do Platanos Go with Collard Greens? a novel by David Lamb, Willie Perdomo's New Yorican Poetry Collection, When a Nickel Costs a Dime, and Dr. Marta Moreno-Vega's personal memoir, When the Spirits Dance Mambo. So, happy reading! This episode was produced by Alejandra Salazar and edited by Sofia Palizaca. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Luis Treyes, Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoca, Ginny Montalvo, Annalisa Escarce, with help from Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholtz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. I'll see you there. Stay safe. Ciao. Funding for Latino USA's coverage of a culture of health is made possible in part by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Latino USA is made possible in part by The Annie E. Casey Foundation creates a brighter future for the nation's children by strengthening families, building greater economic opportunity, and transforming communities. And Carnegie Corporation, promoting the advancement and diffusion of knowledge and understanding. Your crew and it's probably like, girl, stop it. We got to edit this. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, the story of a man who launched a little-known investigation to stop abuses by law enforcement on the U.S.-Mexico border. The kicker? This was 101 years ago. He wholeheartedly believes that if you show the ways in which people are being denied due process, that that is going to alarm politicians. That's next time on Latino USA.